Well, we are nearing the end of 1 Peter. The two verses that we'll look at this morning, 1 Peter 5, 10, and 11, are the close of the body of the letter of 1 Peter. And then the only verses that remain are kind of the, the final greetings uh, that Peter gives. Um, and so we're going to see this morning how Peter closes his letter with uh, just one more word to the people to whom he is writing, the exiles to whom he is writing, that they endure suffering well, entrusting themselves to, as Peter calls him, the God of all grace, the God of all grace. And so as we look at 1 Peter 5, uh, 10 and 11 this morning, I want you to notice how Peter says that this God of all grace has called us to be his, how he's given us this little while of suffering that we experience right now, and how he is preparing us for eternal glory in Christ Jesus. Now, these themes, this idea that right now God is preparing us for eternal glory is not uh, just an idea that Peter has. We see this elsewhere in Scripture, and so we want to go to Romans 8, 18 to 25, where this is the, the same point the Apostle Paul is making, that our sufferings right now are light compared to the glory that awaits us. We also see the same thing in 2 Corinthians four sixteen to 18, that the sufferings right now are preparing us for the glory that is to be revealed. And then finally, uh, we will go to 2 Timothy 2, 1 to 7, where we see Paul encouraging his mentee in the faith, Timothy, to suffer as God has called him to, looking again to that great reward that God has prepared for him. So just have your uh, eyes open to those themes as we read these verses now. Uh, and so Shauna, if you want to come up and begin our reading in 1 Peter 5, 10 and 11. 1 Peter 5, 10 and 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Romans eight eighteen through 25. <clears throat> For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Second Corinthians four sixteen through 18 So we do not lose heart, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 
and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus, of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Well, it's a beautiful title that we see for the Lord in our passage this morning when Peter refers to God as the God of all grace. The God of all grace. And as I look at the verses that we have before us this morning, I see what Peter is doing is essentially spelling out how he could call God the God of all grace. In 1 Peter 5, 10, he begins with those words, after you've suffered a little while, and I believe that even when Peter refers to that suffering for a little while, he's seeing God's grace in that little while of suffering that God's given us. He says, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you. So he recognizes that from the very beginning, the fact that we have come to God, is a work of God that He has called us. He has called us. And what has He called us to? He's called us to His eternal glory in Christ. So this too is grace. He's called us from the beginning. He's called us to this eternal glory. And as we come to that eternal glory, it says, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. Those four words that just express such an abundance of grace, do they not? God doing all of these things for us, restoring us, confirming us, strengthening us, establishing us. And this causes Peter to end on this note of worship in verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so as we look at these verses this morning, I just want to look more carefully at how God's grace truly is infused in all of these phases of the Christian life. How God's grace comes to us and how He called us. How God's grace comes to us and how we suffer right now for a little while. And how God's grace comes to us as we look forward to that eternal glory where God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. So my hope is that as we look at God's grace being poured out on all these phases of our Christian walk and all these phases of our Christian life, our faith will be built up. We will learn to hope in God's grace even more, to trust in God's grace even more, to rely upon his grace even more to see the full measure, the full magnitude of grace that God has poured out so that as you go about living your Christian life today, you never have the thought in your mind that, well, will God give me grace for this? Is God's grace sufficient for this struggle that I have, for that pain that I have, for this thing that I'm going through now? And my hope is that as we see God's grace from the very beginning to the very end, in your heart and in your mind, you will always be able to answer, yes, God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is enough. God's grace is there for whatever it is that I'm going through. 
Because, beloved, it's only as we learn to rely upon God's grace. It's only as we learn to walk by His grace day by day by day that we will be able to bear any fruit in the Christian life. That we will be able to serve God in the least. To whatever extent you think that your Christian faithfulness, that your life right now is dependent upon you, independent of God, figuring something out, being able to do something for yourself, to whatever extent that is how you frame the Christian walk and the Christian life, to that extent you will fail. You will become discouraged. You will fall. You will stumble. Because God did not make us to be self-sufficient. You see, God's God's salvation, the the gospel plan that he has, was not the plan that we have a, a moment of salvation whereby somehow in that moment, God in that moment makes us strong enough so that then we can live the rest of our lives without him. That is not God's plan. God's plan is to, in a moment, awaken us to the depth of our need Awaken us to how much we need a Savior, how much we need a God, how much we need grace. And then, from that moment on, every single day, crying out to God for more and more grace. You see, God is glorified when we cry out to Him for grace. When we admit our need, when we admit our lack. God is not glorified when we have the mentality, when we have the heart that says, No, God, I think I have this figured out. We may even say it in the the great words of the Pharisee, right? I thank you, God, that I'm not like these other people. I thank you, God, that you've already given me what I need. So now I can go about and do what I need to do without you. Okay, that is not God's plan. God's plan is that we understand our need of grace and that we continually, moment by moment, day by day, look to God for that grace. And so my prayer this morning is that as we look at God's grace being poured out on every phase of our Christian life, that we will gain a fresh appreciation for just how much grace is there and for how much God calls us to rely upon that grace so that we can walk in all the ways that he has commanded us to walk. Again, everything that we do in the Christian life, we are to do by the grace of God. And that's why it's so beautiful that Peter calls God the God of all grace. This is why we have hope. This is why we have confidence. Because God is the God of all grace. If he was not the God of all grace, we would be doomed from the start. And so what is the first way in which we see the grace of God in this text in particular? Well, just to go from the beginning of the end of the text, the first thing that's mentioned is after you've suffered a little while. But again, I want to try to take this in chronological order. And so chronologically, the next thing that Peter says, where he says, the God of all grace, who has called you, who has called you, something that happened in the past tense. And so I want to begin there with how is it that we see God's grace in the fact that he's called us? How do we see God's grace in the fact that he has called us? Now, traditionally, Christian theologians have distinguished between two different kinds of call. There is a general call that goes out. That is the call of the gospel. So whenever you are talking with an unbeliever and you're sharing the gospel with them, that is the general call of the gospel. Because whenever we share the gospel, what we should be sharing is the call of God to repent and believe. 
Right? That's what Jesus went about proclaiming. Mark 1.15, he went about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, saying, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so we as Christians, part of our job description is to, wherever God sends us in life, to be proclaiming the gospel, that God has sent his son in Jesus Christ, and by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is now forgiveness of sins. For anyone who would repent and who would trust in him, they can be saved. And so we call everyone, we call them, repent, believe in this great Savior. Trust him, love him, know him. And this is the general call that goes out. And God wants all people everywhere to hear this call of the gospel. And so again, we, as people who have believed in this gospel, who treasure this good news of forgiveness through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We need to be about the business of spreading this gospel, of spreading this gospel call to every creature, to all creation, so that everyone hears the good news of what Christ has done so that they can be saved. However, I don't think that this is the particular call that Peter is talking about. When Peter says he has called you, he is writing here to believers. And in Scripture, there is a call that is distinct from this general call to repent and believe. There is a specific call that God applies to the hearts of those who are ultimately born again. And so this is the second kind of call that we see in Scripture. Now we see these two kinds of calls crashed up next to each other in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 23 and 24. There the Apostle Paul writes, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So notice that. He says, we preach Christ crucified. We give a general call. And when we give this general call, it is a stumbling block to Jews. It is folly to the Gentiles. So a lot of people don't listen to this call. But he gives this call. He preaches Christ crucified. But then notice the next thing that he says. He says, but to those who are called, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Okay, so what happened? What happened that that the Apostle Paul was proclaiming Christ crucified and people were calling it foolishness and folly? And yet some people begin calling it the power of God and the wisdom of God. What changed? Well, the thing that changed is God called them. God spoke to their hearts in some miraculous and wondrous way so that this proclamation, this message that used to be just foolishness to them and folly, all of a sudden became powerful and beautiful and good. And the only way to explain that transformation is the call of God. The particular call of God, whereby God lays that call upon our hearts. Our, our, our spiritual eyes that are closed when we first hear the news of the gospel. God gives this command to our hearts that says, spiritual eyes open. And we were formerly blind and now we see. I mean, the gospel didn't change. It was beautiful all along. But what changed is our perception. What changed is our hearts. And this is the particular call of the gospel. This idea of calling is also mirrored in Romans 8.29, a text that we'll come back to a couple times in this message. There the Apostle Paul says, 
For those whom he foreknew, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. So did you notice that? First, God chose you. He elected you. He predestined you. He set you apart for salvation. And then after he did that, then the next step is he called you. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And then Paul goes on. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay, so notice how calling is essential in this work. Now, I think that this call of God is all of grace in a couple of different ways. There's at least two different ways, I think, that we can understand grace to us in this call. The first way that we can understand something to be of grace is if we understand that it's contrary to what we deserve, right? If we do something wrong and we deserve a punishment, but we don't get a punishment, that's called grace, right? We, we don't get what we deserve. This is the kind of grace that we read about in Romans 3, 23 and 24, where the Apostle Paul writes, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that it is in Christ Jesus. The point that the Apostle Paul is making there is that we deserve one thing, We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and yet we get another thing. We get a gift. We get grace. And so, beloved, this call to us is grace because we don't deserve to be called. We don't deserve to have our eyes open to the glory and the grandeur of God. We deserve to have God simply let us go our own way. I mean, after all, we willfully chose against God. We willfully have chosen to sin day after day to close our eyes to spiritual reality, to enjoy the carnal pleasures of the world. God would have been perfectly fair, perfectly in his rights to say, fine, if that's what you want, go your own way. But God is the God of all grace. And so he doesn't do that. He gives us the call. He speaks to our hearts to open our eyes so that we can see how far astray we had gone. And all of a sudden, When God says, let light shine out of darkness, he shines in our hearts and suddenly we see the beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is grace, beloved. It is not what we deserve. It is grace. There's a second way that it's grace, though, too. It's not just contrary to what we deserve. It's something that comes from the heart of God without any initiation on our part. This is another way that Scripture talks about something being of grace. And so this is the sort of grace that we see described in Romans eleven five and 6. The Apostle Paul writes, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Okay, so hear those words. A remnant chosen by grace. What does it mean? that they have been chosen by grace. Romans eleven six. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Okay, so do you hear what the Apostle Paul is saying there? First of all, grace is we don't get what we deserve. But in a second sense, grace is receiving anything that we ourselves just didn't work for. We couldn't do anything to earn. Something that comes from God himself 
with, again, no initiation on our part, no deserving on our part, no working on our part, just a choice of God. This is grace. And again, in the second way, we also see that this gift of being called is a gift of God's grace. It is a choice that God made, not a choice that we made. A choice that God made whereby he called us. We see that this is a a choice of God, a work of God, in the letter of 1 Peter itself. In 1 Peter 1 verse 3, Peter has said that according to his great mercy, according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. This is something that God did, beloved. We didn't work for it. We didn't think it up and then even just ask God to do it. No, this is something that God planned before we ever existed. Something that God had in mind. When he designed you, when he formed you, he already had this plan for you. He had a plan to pour out grace upon you. It is the choice of God. Now, how does this happen? How does God cause us to be born again to a living hope? Well, again, 1 Peter 1, looking at verse 23 and then skipping down to verse 25. Peter says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. You have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. What is this word? Verse 25 And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This word is the good news that was preached to you. When this good news was preached to you, it caused you to be born again. So can you see in here how the general call and the particular call go together? Right? We go out. We preach the good news. We proclaim the gospel to all creation, urging everyone, exhorting everyone, repent, believe in the gospel, treasure Jesus Christ. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the gospel that we proclaim. And again, to many, it's going to fall on deaf ears. But to some, it will be that imperishable seed that causes them to be born again because of God's sovereign choice. See, God does this work. Through the proclamation of the gospel, God does this work. That's why we value even what I'm doing right now on Sunday morning. I believe that as I preach the gospel, God might use this word that I'm speaking to give grace, to give life, where formerly there is deadness. And it's not because my words are so eloquent or perfect or anything like that. It's because I'm, I'm doing all that I can to give to you the word of God. And insofar as the words that I say are the words of God, God himself has the power to come and to give your heart a particular call in the words that I speak so that you might be saved, so that you might know Christ more and more. You see, beloved, this is God's doing. If you come out of here this morning more encouraged, more built up, wanting to follow Jesus Christ even more, I mean, did you have to pay attention in the message? Yes, you had to pay attention. Did you maybe take notes? Sure, you took notes. You did some various things. But deep down, at the end of the day, it is God's grace that opens your eyes to these realities. I mean, even if you are taking notes, it's God's grace that is enabling you to take notes right now. It's giving you a heart to do that, okay? It is not your doing that is getting you encouraged, that is saving you, that is giving you grace. It is God's doing. It is his call. 
And so this is the first place that we see the grace of God, that God called you. And beloved, what remarkable grace this is, that we who are dead in our trespasses and sins, we who are haters of God, haters of one another, having no hope and without God in this world, that was our condition, beloved. And yet God had planned, even before we rebelled, he had planned that he would save us. And so it's of grace. And then after we sinned, when we deserved even worse, God again poured out his grace and said, even though you've done a million things wrong, I give you grace and I call you to myself. This is the grace of God, beloved. This is the God of all grace who calls us. But the grace doesn't end there. The grace is not just the grace of calling. I believe that even in that first phrase of verse 10, there is grace after you have suffered a little while. You see, we are prone, as fallen creatures, we are prone to think, if I am suffering, that must mean that God is against me. That must mean that God is not showing me grace. That must mean that God is punishing me, or he hates me, or something like that. That's, that's what our hearts are prone to think whenever we suffer. And yet, Peter has gone to great lengths in this letter to encourage the church, to encourage Christians to understand that the sufferings that they're going through at this present time are themselves a gift of God's grace. Because God has a good purpose in the sufferings. He is working out good things for them. 1 Peter 4.13, he says, Rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings. Rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings. Or 1 Peter 1.6, he says, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Beloved, do you see what a privilege it is to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ? Do you see what a gift it is to be able to suffer for Christ? When we suffer for Christ, our faith is being tested. We looked last week at how the beast uses suffering to get us, to tempt us to reject Jesus Christ, to turn away from him. Our faith is being tested. When we suffer, our hearts are tempted to just stiff arm God, say, God, I don't need this anymore. I don't need you anymore. I can just go after the pleasures of the world and I can enjoy my life here and now. That's what suffering tempts us to do. And yet, what if we withstand that temptation? What if we bear that that smacking in the face that suffering gives to us? What if we bear that day after day after day? And what if we hold fast to Jesus Christ? What then? That's when our faith has been tested and found genuine. And when our faith has been tested and found genuine, that is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Beloved, I would rather have a faith where I have suffered and I have been found true, I have been found genuine, to have a faith, have never suffered even once, and then wonder all along, am I really just a comfortable Christian? Am I really just a fair-weather fan? Am I only following Jesus because it's always been really easy because I've never had to do anything hard? 
What would I do if I had to do something hard? What if God called me to give up something? Would I still follow after him? Would I still be obedient and sacrifice what he's calling me to sacrifice? I remember as a, as a kid, you know, I would hear stories of the, the persecuted church overseas, and sometimes I would wonder, like, well, what if, you know, police stormed to this building right now with guns and said, you know, all of you get out, or if you stay true to Jesus, then I'm going to shoot you. And I always wondered, what, what would I do if somebody said they were going to do that to me? And of course, on one level, it's impossible for us to know what we would do in that moment, right? We've never had a gun pointed to our head telling us to renounce Christ. We can't be sure what we would do. But beloved, that's why suffering is a gift. That's why if that would happen, it would be a gift, because then we could know. Then we would have complete confidence. I stayed true unto death. My faith is real. My faith is genuine. And so, beloved, I, I know we can't, you know, suffer at the hands of police like that today, and of course, we shouldn't wish that on ourselves or wish that on anyone. But what we can do is look at the call to discipleship that Jesus gives in the Gospels. Look at the call that Jesus gives us to give up earthly treasures, give up earthly possessions, leave everything and follow after him. And we can seek to be sincere, seek to be wholehearted in that kind of commitment to God, whereby we do give up comfortable things. Not because they're evil, not even because we have to per se, but because we want to know. We want to know that, no, I'm not just a fair-weather Christian. I'm not just here because the chairs are comfortable and the sanctuary is heated, right? I'm here because I love Jesus. Beloved, that's what's precious. That's what we should seek after. And that's why suffering itself is such a gift. Peter even tells us in 1 Peter 4.1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I mean, consider what an enormous blessing that would be to be able to cease from sin. (laughs) How do we get to that place where we can cease from sin? Well, when we get to the place where we can endure suffering, where we can embrace suffering. Again, beloved, if we can bear suffering here and now, whether that's the suffering of the beast, or again, as we looked at last week, the other kind of suffering that God calls us to is the rejection of that woman Babylon, the giving up of wealth, the giving up of earthly pleasures. If we can embrace that suffering, if we can embrace suffering in that way, beloved, then we can cease from sin. The only power that Satan has upon us, the only way that Satan has to sway us is either through the promise of pain or the promise of pleasure. Satan can hold out pleasures and say, oh, come, come this way. These pleasures are really sweet. And if we can say no to those pleasures, in other words, if we can embrace suffering, then we can resist that temptation. Or sometimes Satan might use the tool of pain and say, reject Jesus Christ and you won't have to go through this pain. But again, beloved, if we can embrace suffering, then we can resist that temptation. If we embrace suffering, then we can cease from sin. Now, of course, no one in this room can embrace suffering wholeheartedly. Suffering is, by definition, unpleasant, difficult, right? If it were something easy and light, it wouldn't be called suffering. It would be called comfort or ease. Suffering is hard, and so none of us is going to be able to perfectly endure every kind of suffering that God puts in our lives. 
But more and more, beloved, we need to cultivate this mentality, cultivate this heart that when something difficult comes into our lives, whether it's as small as a kid's request that's inconvenient for us in the moment, whether it is something as great as police storming a building with guns in their hands, whatever level of suffering God might be bringing in, we need to cultivate the heart that says, thank you, Lord, for this suffering. Thank you for this inconvenience. Thank you for this difficulty. Thank you for this call to sacrifice. Because as we embrace that suffering, as we embrace the call of God to give up earthly treasures, to follow him with all our hearts, when we embrace that, then we know that we are not just fair-weather Christians, but we are genuine. And that, beloved, is worth more than pure gold. And so embrace suffering as itself being part of the grace of God to us. Part of the grace of God to us. But there is good news here, right? Peter says that this suffering is just a little while, okay? After you have suffered a little while. Now, I know some of you in this room have suffered greatly, are suffering greatly. When you read those words, do not hear Peter saying, when you have gone through a little suffering, okay? Peter acknowledges that our suffering may be great, may be enormous. I mean, Peter himself should know. I mean, according to church tradition, he was crucified upside down in Rome. He knows suffering, okay? So Peter knows suffering, and he is not saying our suffering is small. Our suffering may indeed be real and weighty and hard to bear. But what he does say is that our suffering is a little while. It is momentary. It does not last long. Now again, if we just have this earthly mentality, this human mentality, then we are going to think that 70 years is a long time, right? We're going to think 80 years is a long time, 90 years is a long time. And of course, I don't think any of us have even suffered for that full amount of time. We might just have to suffer for a day, a week, 10 years, 20 years. And our hearts will want to tell us, the devil will want to tell us, that is a long time. I don't think you can last that long. I don't think you can keep, keep suffering. But what Peter is reminding us here is that it is a little while. Now, how can he say it is a little while? Well, if you just keep reading in verse 10, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. His eternal glory in Christ. What is short compared to eternity? Everything is short compared to eternity, right? (laughs) I mean, just a, a little math lesson, you know, if you've never thought of it. Infinity, you know, sometimes kids like to say infinity is like the biggest number there is, all right? But infinity isn't a number, right? That's the point. It's bigger than any number. It's, it's, it's a concept that stretches on forever and ever and ever. If you were to write down any number and then write down infinity next to it, infinity is infinitely bigger than that number because it's infinity, right? And that's the nature of eternity itself. Let's say God gives you a really long life and you live 120 years or even longer. Like you read in Genesis, people that live 900 years, you know, then, yeah, you have to suffer a long time, right? No, then your suffering is short, Because you still have eternity with Jesus Christ. You have eternity in glory. And again, beloved, this itself is a gift of grace. We do not reach glory. We do not reach eternity, again, because we learn to work really hard. We learn to be really good. 
No, we reach eternity. We reach that final destination because, as the text said, God Himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. You see, God is sustaining us. He is moving us toward that day. To go back to Romans 8, 29 and 30. Those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Notice that none are lost in that chain. Those who are those who are those who. All those that He predestined are those that He called. All those that He called are those that He justified. All those that He justified are those that He will glorify. God sustains you, beloved. You do not sustain yourself. It is a gift of grace that you will one day reach glory. I love the, the way that Peter himself describes this glory, this eternal glory that we have in Christ Jesus. This is in Peter's second letter. So 2 Peter chapter 1, if you just turn the page over, then you're probably there. Uh, 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. Just listen to how the words of Peter here line up exactly with what he's saying here at the end of 1 Peter. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Pause there for a moment. What, how is it that we have what we need for life and godliness? Is it our own strength? Is it our own wisdom? Is it stuff that we figure out? No, it is his divine power. It is grace, beloved. He's the God of all grace. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. That's what we're called to, glory, excellence. By which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them, now listen to the glory here, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Beloved, the glory, the eternal glory that we get in Christ Jesus is partaking of the divine nature, escaping from the corruption that is in this world. All the suffering that we experience right now, beloved, is a result of corruption, is a result of sin, is a result of the fall. The day is coming, beloved, when God will make all things new, When he will bring about new creation, everything that is sinful, that is wrong, will be condemned, will be thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever, and God will become all in all. And we, whom God has called, whom God has justified, God will also glorify us. We will become partakers in this divine nature. We will never know another moment of suffering, of pain, of fear, of terror, of anything at all, beloved. We will only know bliss and joy and peace and love and beauty and perfection forever and ever and ever. Beloved, this is grace without end. And this is grace ever increasing forever and ever for all eternity because God himself is infinitely glorious, infinitely beautiful. We will spend eternity with him, but every moment of eternity, we will grow in greater and greater awareness of his amazing grace, of his amazing glory. 
We will partake more and more in that divine nature. And yet we ourselves will never become God. We ourselves will never be done with that work of knowing God more and more. We will always be creatures. We will always be dependent. We will always be gazing upon the God of all grace. Because even for all eternity, there will never be a moment where any of us have deserved to be there. There will never be a moment where any of us got there by our own wisdom, by our own designs. It will be God whom we recognize as the one who called us. God is the one who purified us by the suffering that we experienced for a little while. And God who is pouring out grace upon grace, glory upon glory, forever and ever and ever. And so you see, beloved, how Peter after saying these words, after saying that after we've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace will call us to his eternal glory in Christ, how his heart would just move immediately to praise in verse 11 and say to him, be the dominion, be the power, be the might forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, when you see the grace that God has poured out, when you see how his grace called you, how his grace comes to you in in suffering, how his grace brings you to eternal glory. Your heart ought to exclaim, ought to proclaim, God, would you have all the power? Would you have all the might in heaven and on earth? Would there be no rival to your throne? Would there be no power apart from your power? Because your power alone is the power of all grace and the power of all goodness. Every other power aside from God ultimately leans toward corruption, bends toward corruption. Only God can have all power in heaven and on earth and only ever use that power to pour out grace upon grace upon grace. And so we rejoice in God's power and we pray and we worship and we ask that God would indeed have all the dominion, all the power forever and ever. And amen. Beloved, this is why Peter says that we are a people who have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light so that we can proclaim the excellencies of him who has done this amazing work. So would you go to God and pray with me right now? Would we pray to God confessing our sin, knowing that his grace is there for us? Would we pray to God asking that his power be more evident, spread more across our city and our world as we seek to intercede for ourselves and for those around us that more might know this good news of God's grace and that more might know the power of God in their lives. Let's go to the Lord together now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we cannot offer enough thanks. We cannot offer enough praise for the grace that you have showered upon us. Grace upon grace, Lord. Grace of being called. Grace of allowing us to suffer. Grace of bringing us safely home. Lord, we recognize that we have no good things in ourselves. And we repent, Lord, of the many thoughts and attitudes in our hearts that we've had this week of pride of saying that, yes, I do know enough. I am sufficient in myself. I'm better than so-and-so. 
God, forgive us for that kind of pride. Help us to see your grace more clearly. Would you receive now our prayers of confession and our prayers of intercession as your people?